Welcome back to This Film Not Rated, a branch of the Music City Drive-In Podcast Network, where we try not to rate what we watch this week. There's a bit of a competition here where we try not to earn points, and at the end of the season, the person with the fewest points wins. You earn points by saying anything too subjective without justifying it. Like if you say, the movie just sucked, you'll hear... But we're mostly saving that for our gauntlet now at the end of every episode. But the real reason we're here, Curtis, what did you watch this week? This week, I watched Deep Cover, uh, directed by Bill Duke, and I watched Tremors. Sweet. I watched Minari uh, after waiting for so long, and I watched The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Another thing that I did, an ongoing series I've been writing for the Music City Drive-In, is a retrospective on Harry Potter since the first movie's 20th anniversary was this year. Mm-hmm. I watched Order of the Phoenix, and I recognized some stuff about that movie that I might want to comment on. Um, so I'm most excited right now to talk about Deep Cover, because I think both of us were caught by surprise by that. One of the things that kind of like struck me about Deep Cover was I I wasn't expecting the the Larry Fishburne. Larry Fishburne. He's credited as not the first time. Like apparently in his early work, he switched back and forth between Larry and Lawrence. As I I had looked this up, but yeah, that caught me a little bit off off guard. But uh, I wasn't expecting like full on narr- narration like like in a traditional noir style movie. Despite this being neo noir, it did what it was supposed to do, which you got a first hand insight on on what uh, his character was thinking at at all times, and then like. Yeah, all the contrasting themes and and just the light work, like uh, like you have uh, scenes where you have shades of deep purple and blue kind of blending together, and it just mm-hmm. looks freaking gorgeous. Like artificial lighting in in some of the best ways, and they like pseudo naturalistic, like they they try and make everything feel a little more heightened, yeah, and dramatic. And then there's the uh, striking angles and all this different stuff. Like uh, the yeah. style is very. Gritty crime noir. They literally end on a on a dock, like meeting at the docks of drug deal yeah. gone down. Yeah, you know that's. But uh, no, no, the the reason why why that's why why the dock is probably my favorite scene because it's 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 Lawrence Fishburne's character coming back to his senses after a very long stint of like delving deep into this uh, crime scene after quitting the police force. It, it it happens at the death of what I see as like the. The conscience of of uh, Lawrence Fishburne. It's it, it's it's the character that he wants to be, but doesn't have the the right temperament or, or 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 attitude to actually fulfill that character. So when he dies, it kind of snaps him back to reality. Like you, the shock and surprise and like sense of betrayal that you get with Jeff Goldblum and in, 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 in that scene is just all over. Just... A lot of the conflict in the movie, I think, comes from Lawrence Fishburne's internal experience, and I think that's why it's narrated so that. You understand that you're aligned with this character. Yeah. You're not always going to be 100% sure what he's going to do, but you understand what he's thinking at every point in the movie. It's basically about his growing relationship with Jeff Goldblum in the criminal world that he's exploring. Right. And him gradually being, feeling cornered and or hung out as bait by the police force he works for. And that scene in the in the movie theater is where there's like a huge sort of turn for the character mm-hmm. in any other movie, any more modern movie where things would be a little more gritty or grounded in reality. I'm thinking of something like Sicario. I can't see the character making the turn that he makes in the end. It feels a little idealistic, but I think Jeff Goldblum is personally responsible for making that work. Yeah. 
watching Jeff Goldblum's other descent into be wanting to be taken seriously yeah. and all the little choices that he makes. Right. Like, when he holds that gun with his two forefingers and his thumb and he's just holding the gun sideways, like, he's just, it's like he's examining it, but he's in a threatening showdown where he's, I, oh, oh, he's such an oddball in the best way. I love Jeff Goldblum. And then uh, you have, you have his, his contrast too. Like, yeah, you, you, you're, you have him associated with these like dangerous drug cartel people with the backdrop of, of the, of the squeaky clean white picket fence family life. Yeah. uh, How many, how many movies is Jeff Goldblum the wild card where you're, you're not 100% sure only, that he's going to put the other characters at risk of danger. The only other movie I can think of is The Fly. True. There, and, and again, there's another descent there. And I, yeah, you know, and that's, that's, I think those are the movies maybe where I like him the best. Jeff Goldblum is so talented when it comes to passion. The, all yeah. the anger and intensity and anxiety that comes with that, yeah, just passion. And, and there's a, a, a really like like the 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 relationship between Jeff Goldblum and Lawrence Fishburne is is is, is depicted in, in in many ways. But but one of the indicators is, is is there's this joke that's going between them, and it's 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 hit three times, and it's what's the weirdest sex act that you've ever done? Mm. Once at the beginning of the relationship, once in the middle, and mm. once at the end. And each time the answer is different, and that answer kind of reflects where they are at that stage mm-hmm. each time and the the writing is so really solid re- yeah yeah the, the the combination of writing and performances is the reason why i would go back to watch this again because it feels naturalistic even though the production design feels very staged yeah this movie was released in 1992 the same <laughs> year if i remember right as bram stoker's dracula no i think you're right yeah this movie, the the supposed significance of this movie is there is an uptick of uh, black film in the early 1990s in, in terms of different types of representation and not having to be certain kinds of movies and whatnot. There's this whole sort of, not sub-genre, but cultural movement of filmmaking. A lot of them that happened in the 90s. The independent film movement was on this different track. So it's like a different platform was created for uh, directors and people to get work done that was not so heavily studio system. I'll just say Deep Cover has probably two of the best performances I've seen from Lawrence Fishburne and Jeff Goldblum. I would agree. The look of the movie is like almost no other movie that was coming out around the same time. And it's just a strong, gritty crime neo noir. Yeah. On, on top of that, you know, just just the, the 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 camera work and 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 the smooth writing. There are a lot of reasons why I would want to come back to watch this movie. So let me pull this over to another movie that has its own history of racial attention, but is so much different in in modern day than its reception. The Treasure of the Sierra Madre is a movie based on a book written by B. Traven, who no one was ever 100% sure who he was. Okay. But he had correspondence with a studio regarding getting his movie made. And was directed by John Huston, who is a guy who grew up to be the main villain in Chinatown. Okay. Oh, all right. Yeah. <laughs> the old man. Um, his father, Walter Houston, plays the... 
uh, I want to say prospector, but I don't think that's his actual like job in the movie. Mm-hmm. But he's the one who knows where gold is. Humphrey Bogart and Tim Holt play uh, two characters named Dobbs and Curtin. Mm-hmm. They are down on their luck. They are broke. And they live right near in Mexico where gold can be found in hills. And mm. this man knows how to get it. Okay. So they go out and, and mine and prospect for gold. And it's really about what that does to the character psychologically. Okay. And apparently when it came out, there were a lot, there was a lot of harsh criticism about it being such a downer ending and Humphrey Bogart playing such a nasty character. <laughs> but you know what's funny? This is of all movies that I never knew was coming. So well, a bunch of people out there, if you do ever listen to this and you're like, ha, ah, you didn't know that? Yeah. I didn't know that. The line is actually badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to have no stinking badges. Oh, that line is from this movie? Everyone says you don't we don't need no stinking badges, but it's that's like a piece together of three different oh. lines from a Mexican bandit. Okay. Uh played by a Mexican actor but intentionally cast based on looking unpleasant. You're on Mexican property. All your heroes are white men. All of the Mexicans are either helpless and are saved by the old man, a white man coming into town and helping a child who's sick. So the whole white savior thing going on. In return, they literally give him like women in glory and a whole life. They say, if you stay in our town, we will be forever thankful. And they they give him a whole life. And of of just like, of just subservience. It's a very... Very slowly paced but well paced sort of story about mm. two characters on their own. They meet this guy, they make this decision, they go out, they mine for gold, they meet another character, Bruce Bennett, mm-hmm. uh, and Cody, who knows what they're doing and agrees to help them for only a fraction and is trying to be nice to them. Yeah. Gets caught up in the bandit interaction, gets killed in the bandit interaction. Remember, we talk with no regard for spoilers here. And what you realize that this movie is just doing is just planting seeds to see how the characters are going to react. Okay. And that that was the thing that was interesting to me about like the writing of it. I mean, it's a 1927 novel, and the movie was made in 1948. And as much as the movie doesn't handle depictions of race very well... It's odd because most productions wouldn't shoot on location in Mexico. And most productions wouldn't hire actual Mexican actors right. to work on crews and things like that. So it's sort of a... I, I don't really know necessarily how to... Where, where to plant my feet in terms of this. Like, um, there was a, an argument behind the scenes that um, a direct... That, that a studio executive was holding out on starting the production... Mm-hmm. Because of issues with with wanting to include minorities, mm-hmm. but there's suspicion that that was just a holdout to make sure they got the right okay. director. So Humphrey Bogart, yes, is faced with the choice of is his friend going to steal his money from him, mm-hmm. or is he going to kill him and steal his money from him, or are they both just going to be civil and split their profits? And this character Curtin has continually proven to Humphrey Bogart that he's fine. That he can be trusted. Okay. And it's still just this descent from Humphrey Bogart into attacking him. And this this was the thing that I want to see in stories. The leads, the heroes of the movie, are primarily forgiving characters. Okay. Curtin and Howard, the, the two leads, played by the guy's father and the, the youngest of them. Mm-hmm. Humphrey Bogart attempts to shoot him dead and leaves him scrambling on the ground until he gets picked up by a Mexican and brought to... 
Howard, Walter oh. Houston, who, okay. who you know, he was helping heal the kids, so he helps reheal him. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, Dobbs, Humphrey Hogarth's character, is just trying to make his way back inside of civilization just so that he can get his exchange of funds and he can get on his way. And then the bandits come back and hack him to death. Humphrey Bogart does not survive the movie. All right. And uh, the result is a miscommunication where he tried to hide thinking, like, like saying that what they were actually transporting was just pelts mm-hmm. that were worth money. Okay. And so the bandits were like, oh, they were trying to weigh down their pelts so that they would get more money from them with these bags of sand. And they discard the bags of sand. What's that? It's not actually bags of sand, is it? No, it's all their gold. And then they all end up getting arrested and shot. It's it's a very dark, 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 dark I ending. Get, I see that. And then when Curtin and Howard make it back, and he realizes that, that unfortunately Dobbs has passed away, uh, that um, Howard, Walter Houston, the, the oldest, uh, has his life set aside by the Mexicans who are going to serve him forever, I guess. And the character Curtin... All these little seeds of chapters that feel like they're not there is like, well, you have a purpose in life. The man who died, why don't you go take, you know, the money that is left that we have and go try and find his family and let them know that he, how he died and, you know, send the message. And so he kind of rides off with like a purpose and a little bit of seed money and separated from Dobbs. Mm -hmm. The studio was shoving them towards a positive ending. But I think there's a rare thing in there where... Uh, Walter Houston Howard's character insists, no, Humphrey Bogart's character was not a bad guy. He said that he himself, when he was young, had he been around that much gold, would have probably been about the same kind of person. That there is an influence of circumstance and there's Mm. an influence of desperation that it's not necessarily greed, that there's more than one way to look at something and you don't have to condemn someone for falling victim to things that are out there for everybody. Okay. That is one of the most surprisingly hopeful downer endings I think I've ever seen. And I, I don't know. I thought that was really cool. Okay. Complete other side of representation. Minari. Now, I'm, I'm going to say right off the bat, this is a movie that I've been wanting to see for a while. I think it's a it, it's a Korean film, if I'm not mistaken. Well, it's directed by a Korean director, but it's Korean-American and it's about Korean-Americans. Okay. okay. The director... Uh, Lee Isaac Chung uh, compiled, started to compile memories when he decided he wanted to make a movie of what it was like growing up. Okay. And him and his grandmother planting a Minari plant and just a few other scenes. And this led to him stringing together a story that very appropriately has no ending. Okay. I, I love this movie and I will try and justify saying that. <laughs> but honestly, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a point for it. It was gorgeous. The simple, 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 simple truth of the story is a family has just moved out from California to basically a trailer home. They want to start a farm. They want to start from the ground up and build a life. And they have to also take care of the maternal grandmother. And they try. And they try. It's just the movie about trying? It's the little lessons along the way that the dad is trying to teach to his kids, the conflict between the father and mother about whether or not they can make it as a couple. Okay. The uncertainty of the mother and whether she has faith in the father and his ability to provide. The grandmother's role as sort of like a unconditional support for the kids, almost like 
to poke at the parents. Okay, this sounds like a, like it, it could. It sounds like a roller coaster, kind of like how how life itself is, where where you, it sounds like you're you're gonna get the high highs and the low lows. Am I like somewhere in the in the ballpark there? Or is well, it- that's that's the striking thing is this this movie. It's really 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 hard to define American, but this movie in by showing just a family trying to make it in America while still living by their own culture. Like, by contrasting their culture with the culture they're trying to adapt to helps define being American. Okay. And I really feel like this family, if it's any reflection of the family of the director who grew up with, they are more American than most of the people that I've grown up knowing in Georgia. There are values that feel like they're universal, like the um, integrity of hard work. Right. And... uh being smart enough to run your own life, like intuition versus intelligence. Like, kids want to sneak Mountain Dew, whether they're allowed to drink it or not. Right. That is, in part, in some ways, an American experience. Yeah. I, it's not particularly Korean. It's not particularly white. No, it's it's, 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 it's literally, I want something. How do I go about getting that thing? It's, yes. Yeah. Um, but the particular foods and rituals and... Inten- you know, like the uh, Christianity is a religion in Korean culture, and all these things are staples yeah. that happen to be familiar to most like American culture, but like mm-hmm. m- not all uh, racial cultures or anything like that. Like mm-hmm. it's there's there's stuff that's unique to them, and there's stuff that's universal. And I don't know. It just I think that's the point. Is you watch uh, when a stroke happens to a family member, mm-hmm. it is universal that what that hardship is and means to go through. This movie, I, I, I really don't want to spoil it for you because I, I kind of want to know how you feel coming out of it. Mm-hmm. But there are three different, absolutely left open-ended, unfinished, unclear things going on. Okay. Uh, one character's health maybe is getting better. Maybe not. Another person almost entirely burned their livelihood to the ground. And it's completely up in the air whether or not the parents are going to stay together or if the mom's going to leave them. Okay. End of movie. And it is one of the sweetest things. Like, again, it's not downer ending, but it's so hopeful. Because there's so many unspoken things. And Sania and I were trying to piece together, like, what's going to happen to this family? Mm-hmm. And I think what happened is I kind of realized that what we were doing is we were caring about the family and all these people and what was going to happen to them. Right. Not really talking about how is this movie supposed to end. Okay. Ah, okay. Okay. And it's like, okay, so you you have fully engrossed yourself in the lives and struggles that these people face and you care about them. And that's the point. The quiet moments, the direction, the perspective. The camera is almost always at a lower angle looking up. Mm Mm-hmm. Which I wonder if that's conscious, based on the guy having memories of when he was a kid, so he remembers looking up at everything. Right. Um, and except for like in church, in just a few scenes where the camera is directly across, but most of the time, the camera is at a lower angle looking up. And then, Will Patton, the actor, he's an actor from Halloween and Halloween Kills, the uh, sheriff who got okay run over and then survived somehow. Right. Uh, he plays a guy with PTSD from fighting in the Korean War. Ooh, okay. And so he sees it as a part of his duty, his mission to help this family find their footing. He's sort of like the a laughing stock of the town, but you see how like the kids and the family relate to him and mm. how him as a staple of this town 
is a reflection on their success based on the other kids and people in the community. Mm-hmm. And it's he performs that eerily well. At first I thought he had like makeup on to make him look different, but he didn't. Like he just Ooh. I I don't know, he's the the whole movie, every performance was fantastic. Steven Yun, I don't know, it, it, it's it fell in love entirely with the entire cast and crew. I hope they just get together and just do like a reunion thing where they all talk about like, you know, that sounds like it would be fun. His family. But like, I don't know. It's it's just really nice and heartbreaking. And I guess sometimes you want that. But I think there was a movie that you wanted to talk about. Maybe, real quick? Uh, yeah, just, just, just real quick. Just real quick. Uh, and I'll throw in my thing about Harry Potter after sure. that. Sure. Uh, it's, um, not, it's not a whole lot that I want to add because you covered it pretty well uh, when you talked about it. Uh, cat people. And like, there's two two things specifically. The first one, uh, the 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 scene that stuck out the most to me was the pool scene, where tension is being racked up, like you said, with what you're not seeing because there's echoes going all um, all the way around. But with the way the pool is reflecting onto the walls, and you have all all the rippling movements, and it gives it a faster pace than what I think you would normally have, which kind of ups the tension just a little bit more. Oh yeah, there's more movement where things would have been more still. Yeah, yeah. gosh, everything in that movie is controlled through the stuff you're not looking, you don't usually pay attention right. to. And then the other thing that I noticed, that, like that caught me off guard, like it's it's the jump scare scene essentially. Mm-hmm. There's there's a bit of a rhythm to it because the camera's cut is is constantly cutting back and forth between the person who's being stalked and and the cat person and there's a moment where it, this person walks in and out of frame the next person walks in and out of frame and there's one moment where the camera holds just a little bit too long and the second person doesn't walk in frame and it's unsettling as all get out so it's set up an expectation then just made you really uncomfortable yes cool. uh, that's pr- pretty much all i want to add to that but yeah all right well, my thing I wanted to say about Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix is it is the Harry Potter movie about Harry Potter. And I think that's the reason why everyone forgets it. That movie could just be called Harry Potter. Yeah, I guess. We're introduced to Harry on his own. Yes. And we get a flashback. This movie stands entirely on its own. You don't have to watch a single other element right. movie so in order to, to, to... No, I mean like you're the fifth entry in a series... You don't have to watch one through four to be completely into everything. Okay. Like Harry watch gets pulled into Snape's memories through magic that is explained hurriedly, but still explained. Okay. And hears his dad, which is well set up, tormenting him and then calls his friends Padfoot and Mooney before Harry uses he's got Padfoot at the place where it's hidden. Like it's set up within that movie. Mm. They didn't even tell you who the authors of the Marauders map were in these movies. Yeah. The, the, you know how after part three, mm. they said that J.K. Rowling and people, the way that they wrote uh, this. And um, by the way, I wanted to shout out real quick before I talk about this. The Film Optics podcast has been doing a review on the Harry Potter movies that's uh, run, I believe, by Christian Uhlenberg. If you guys check that out on the Music City Drive-In Podcast Network, uh, leave them a comment or something and tell them that we said hello and that their series has been awesome. Uh, you said something earlier that kind of struck me, like... Uh, like- how this movie could 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 be a standalone thing on its own, and and you went into really good detail on on why that is. It makes me wonder if if that was an intentional choice by uh, David Yates saying, "I'm new to this. I want to establish this on my own." And I, I wonder if that was a mental choice of his, or or if it was just in the writing itself. I don't know. Anyways, Harry is introduced as someone tormented by having seen someone die, and he lives with a bully of a person who's. You know, making fun of him. Right. And they get attacked by something magical and evil. 
The Dementors are the most quintessentially evil-looking things ever. Yeah. And another human reestablishes the rules real quick and like like how did and Mrs. Felch, how do you know about this and not know this? And yeah. Harry's expelled from Hogwarts and oh he attends Hogwarts, you know what this is. It's all reestablished. So you know who Harry's aunt and uncle is, you know how they feel about yeah. him, you know all this stuff. Yeah. And then Harry uh goes for his uh, ministry thing, you learn this Dark Lord is back, Harry saw it, nobody believes him, the ministry is willingly oppressing them. Dumbledore won't speak to him, but this is all from his perspective. It's all in his his lineup. It's his trial. He goes to school. We don't focus on Hermione or Ron or anyone for any scenes that don't have Harry in it. This story is about Harry learning to protect his mind from Voldemort in his brain. Mm-hmm. Harry becomes the defense against a dark arts teacher. Right. We have like one scene where she's the defense against a dark arts person. And then by the time we're in there the next time, it's Neville swishing his wand for what Harry's been teaching him. Okay. So it's all led by... Will people understand Harry? Is Harry alone? How does he feel? He's coping alone in the woods. That's how he meets Luna. Like, and it's all Harry, Harry, Harry. All the way up until the end where the, there's a specific moment where Harry says, maybe it's better to go it alone. And then there's a response where they realize that Harry was going to get caught by Umbridge and tortured. If it weren't for the fact that a bunch of people caused an uproar and intervened. And so Ron is like, maybe you don't have to go it alone. And it's like, after bottlenecking the whole story into just Harry's point of view, the ending all of a sudden opens up and is like a kaleidoscope of everything that fans like about the series. Okay. Like, Mad-Eye Moody has his moment of combat. Sirius has his moment where he calls Harry James. Like, Remus has to hold back Harry, and you see him holding back. And the battle between Voldemort and Dumbledore visually puts them in perspective in terms of wizardry. Right. Like, in comparison to everybody else we've been seeing. Like, Bellatrix is literally holding Neville by the neck at that point. Right. Uh, so many little relationships that have been teased at. And it's like, you you bottleneck the story around Harry Potter, and then it's like a reminder that Harry is the protagonist. He's an avenue into a world that you care about more than just him. Right. So what are you doing for the gauntlet? Uh, Tremors. Tremors with Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon. The one with Kevin Bacon, right? Mm. He's in... That one only, I think. Uh, he's only in the first one. Yeah. Yeah. So Tremors, a movie that I have not seen since the 90s. Is the <laughs> is it a good or bad movie? Tremors is not what I expected it to be when I first saw it back in when I was uh, 13 or so years old. I, I What I was expecting was a straight up horror movie. And what I got was like a blend of horror and, and comedy. So it, it's... It, it it was striking in the sense that I got something that I wasn't expecting. What was your favorite scene? Okay, a scene that stuck out to me was it's probably the introduction of of the of the townspeople when 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 Fred Ward and Kevin Bacon first get back in into town. You get a quick interaction with almost everyone in town. I think everyone in in, in town, and, and you have a quick idea of what they're like, and it, it, it that that kind of stays consistent throughout the rest of of the movie. So. What would you take out of the movie if you were to edit it? There is a scene where where they're they're driving back after they encounter the second dead person, and uh, the and and Fred Fred Ward and Kevin Bacon are warning the people who are doing road uh, road work that that there's a serial killer on 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 the loose. The only importance for that scene being in there is to establish that they don't know what's fully going on. Uh, other than that, it's just a way to to track where they are at any given moment and. 
and like I said, they're them doing road uh, road work is already established, so they could always cut back to that scene and, and the whole avalanche at any point. It, it, it doesn't need to be in there. Uh, so for number four, instead of ranking them, just tell me the best and the worst actor in the movie. Well, I, I do have answers for this, so just go ahead and ring the damn thing. <laughs> best actor, in my opinion, is actually Michael Gross because of how because of how he plays that character. Originally, he, he was going to play that character as as like a over the top like southern um, uh, caricature. Yes, and uh, what the director did was he kind of pulled him back and made that character seem a lot more grounded. I can't stand the acting from from the teenage kid. Oh. Uh, it, it, it just, uh, there's just something. Well, would about- you remove the character from the movie? <laughs> kind of would, but. Ah! That's the other half of that half a point. Okay. <laughs> he's he's just there to be a nuisance. Which he's is, just there to be a nuisance. He's just there to be a nuisance, and that's fine. Give your favorite quote from the movie. It's not a quote. It's more of an action, and it's 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 the scene. It it it's it, it's the comedy shot where 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 Burt Gunner and and Reba McIntyre are shooting the the uh, graboid at the wall. Mm-hmm. The camera pans back to a beautiful shot of them throwing down the guns, and they just have a wall of artillery. <laughs> Right behind them. Mm. It's great. Uh, new question six. Uh, what is this movie missing? As a personal note, I kind of wish there was a little bit more gore. But it's PG-13 and that allowed it to get a, a wider release, but it also wasn't in theaters long, so it didn't matter. Yeah, just, eh. just, throw, just throw more gore. Release like an edited version where they add a bunch of CG gore. Everybody <laughs> loves CG gore. Sure they do. Did you mm. learn anything from the story Tremors? I like how the characters interact with each... I said, like, the way the characters interact with each other gives you a sense that they... that, that there's a, a... that they've known each other for, for a long time. It, it's not like they're trying to introduce each other. You get a sense that, that, that there is a bond that, that is formed within, with, within this whole small-town community. And then the bond could be, could be friendship. It, it, it could be animosity. It's, it, it, it's not just one thing. Did you learn anything about making movies from watching this? This is one of the first movies where not showing the creature gave uh, show show showed me how 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 well imagination can benefit a movie because I I saw this film before I saw Jaws, mm. so the I so and so so the idea of, of not being able to see the creature and and, and and leaving that to your imagination it's the first time I, I ever saw that and the first time that, that, that I learned that uh, you could do that and before alien right and, yeah and before alien yeah but what about this time did anything stick out to you about the movie making of it um nothing about the movie itself but I did watch a documentary that that, that went into how the movie was was scripted and it, it's it's rather unique where uh, there, there are two writers. Mm-hmm. One started from one end, the other started from the other end. They wrote those, then they swapped, and oh. and then they critiqued and and wrote into the other's script what they would want to see. And they kind of went about that until they got what they felt was the best version of what they both wanted. Cool. What would make you watch this again? Uh, hit the buzzer. This movie's just fun. This movie is. This movie is 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 just. Fun. The, the the idea of, of, of these characters having to deal with this this, this constantly escalating threat in, in constantly escalating ways is it's it's one of the things that would make me want to shoot a movie like this. Because it's it's not like there's a whole lot 
involved. I mean, I think it had a budget of like 10, 10 million. It's, it's one town where they could destroy the props af- afterwards because they didn't really need them for for the rest of of the, the shoot. So you could literally shoot everything on location. And it's fun with movie making. So one could say you learned a lot about making movies from watching this. One of the other things I learned from the many other things, but whatever. All right. So give me, tell me about Nick Cage. Would he have made this better? I can't see Nick Cage as any of the existing characters in the film. If you were to make another character for Nick Cage to play in this movie, I can see him fitting in somewhere. Well thought. We have been this film not rated. Remember, we are a branch of the Music City Driving Podcast Network. Check out the Film Optics Podcast and a number of others uh, over at themusiccitydrivein.com. I'm Eric, and you can find me at High Contrast FLM on Twitter. Uh, I'm Curtis. You can find me at 90sGamer407 on Twitter and on Twitch from time to time at uh, Merrick un- un- underscore Tainment, where uh, every Tuesday and Thursday I will be doing streaming from about 11.30 to around 1.30 to 2 in, in, in the morning, and every Friday I do an anime watch party if you are into anime and that's eastern time that is eastern time all right all right all right all right all right america